0: I want to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious Word to John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at this morning John chapter 1 verses 1 through 14. I want to talk to you about the Christmas warrior. I'm going to read just simply in a moment verse 14 and then pray for God's mercy as we study together. I invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. John chapter one verse fourteen. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us. Help us to see with wide-eyed wonder the glory of Jesus the Christ. Lord, help us to look into this text that is so full of truth, so full of wonder, and help us to apply our lives to its truth. May we live within... The story that we study today. May we live for your glory. May we know the life that you bring. May we live in your light. And may we be new creations for the sake and glory of Christ. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. May be seated. There is a war on Christmas, and all of us should be involved in doing something about it. Now, the war on Christmas I'm talking about doesn't have anything to do with retail cashiers saying Merry Christmas. It doesn't have anything to do with whether or not companies and businesses uh, put out stuff in holiday colors with Christmas sayings on them. It doesn't have anything to do with whether or not there are Christmas trees at local courthouses or in public areas. The war on Christmas I'm talking about has nothing to do with any of that. The problem is that we often think the battlefield we face is defending the cultural Christmas sentimentality that we've always experienced. We tend to think that's the battlefield. We sort of like Christmas time. We like the Christmas season. We like the sort of sentimentality and the way that moves us. And we want it to be the way it's always been. So we think that the issue in defending Christmas has to do with all of the cultural components. But much of what many people are committed to defending is merely sentimentality and doesn't really have much to do with what Christmas really is about and the reason we celebrate and set aside a time to mark out the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We were in Israel recently with a large group of people and we ate at this restaurant. And we had a huge group, so the restaurant owner knows she's about to make a lot of money. And uh, so she comes out and greets us and, and starts talking to us. Then she said, I've got something for you. I'm going to sing you a song. And she starts belting out, standing on holy ground with a Jewish accent. I mean, on and on and on. And on. And we did not go, you know, isn't that sweet? She's Jewish, but she's singing, standing on holy ground for us. And we thought, that is really weird and awkward. It was just strange. While we were there, also one of our guides who was helping navigate the trip for us, he said, Oh, you haven't seen anything yet. He said, in the busy time, sometimes going out on the Sea of Galilee, they will have a band in the boat and they will be uh, singing Lee, Greenwood, good, Lee Greenwood's, I'm proud to be an American. The Sea of Galilee! That's weird and awkward and strange. It is not moving that somebody who is perhaps Jewish or perhaps even Muslim is singing that song. Why are they singing it? They will say whatever we want them to say if we will keep coming and spending money. Is there really something noble about a Walmart cashier who claims to be an atheist saying Merry Christmas? I think it's a false battlefield. In fact, I think that it really is often a way of distracting us from the real battlefield. Because when we draw up those battle lines, we can always be the good guys. But the real war on Christmas is that we often do not think Christmas is war. That's the real issue. If Christmas is to us only cultural sentimentality, we have declared war on Christmas. The Bible tells us that Christmas itself is a decisive act of spiritual war. The Gospel of John doesn't focus on what happened when Jesus was born, But the Gospel of John focuses on what it means that Jesus was born. We've got to get that right. We've got to understand that. John does not spend a lot of time in Galilee, but he begins his account here in eternity past, before there was a created order, before there was a world. He starts in eternity past, and he spends a great deal of his time in Jerusalem. Because that's what he's dealing with. What does it mean that Christ was born? This is a part of an eternal plan, an eternal reality that invades history, time and space and location. Jesus, John says, is the decisive turning point in the spiritual war that began at the very beginning, that began in the Garden of Eden. When there was Adam and there was Eve, and the Lord had spoken to them, and the Lord told them to rule the world under His authority, and yet another voice, the voice of a serpent, showed up in the garden questioning the words of God with His own words. Has God really said? And the implication is God's holding out on you. They listen to the voice of the serpent. There's what we call the fall into sin. The world is now marred by sin, and God, in Genesis 3:15 gives us the promise. And it's a promise that in this battle, a seed born of woman will crush the head of the serpent. It's a promise of victory, by a child that would be born. That child would be the promised Messiah. He would be the one who is reclaiming the world to the glory of God. You see, this is the decisive turning point in that promise. A seed will be born of woman. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Christ, and we are celebrating the fact that that seed born of woman has come. Victory is sure he came that he might die on a cross and he is raised from the dead and everything about john's gospel is not just descriptive but everything about the way john articulates everything he's articulating it is a call to decision it's a call to respond it's always a call to okay this is true what will you do How will you respond? You must clarify your allegiance, John keeps saying, because this life is that spiritual war that began in the very beginning. And the issue is the serpent and the seed born of woman. Those are the two streams in world history to which every battle can ultimately be traced back to. And the first thing we see in John's Gospel is that Jesus is the creative word. Verses 1 through 3. Jesus is the creative Word. Notice the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now in all of these verses, there is so much packed in here. We could spend all kinds of time on each one of these clauses. But what I want you to see is how all of this fits together. Immediately, if you are familiar with your Bible in the beginning. That is how the Bible begins. That is the book of Genesis, what we call the Old Covenant. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did He create it? By His Word. He spoke. Verbal fiat. God speaks and there it is. So the Bible begins in the beginning. And now we come to the gospels, this new age that God is bringing to pass in Christ, and we see in the beginning again. But in the beginning was the Word. And we see that this Word is connected to the creative Word in the very beginning. In fact, it is Him who was involved in the creation, in the very beginning, and now here this word is. It's not clarified who this is until we get to verse 17, and it says that this word who was in the beginning is Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Christ. That the word that was there before there was a world is now in the world. And his name is Jesus. In the beginning, you see, Jesus is the agent of a new creation. Jesus is bringing about a new world. He is reclaiming the old fallen created order by bringing about a new creation. Ultimately, when He consummates His kingdom, it's called the new heavens and the new earth, the cre- new created order. Jesus is the agent of that new creation. Why does there need to be a new creation? Because the old one has fallen. It's marked by sin and rebellion. In fact, the Bible refers to it as the present evil age, whose God is the devil, the, the serpent the evil voice from the very beginning. The reason there needs to be a new creation and there needs to be one who comes and brings about a new creation is because the old one is fallen and the old one has declared war on the God who created in the very beginning. In the beginning was the word, the the logos. It's just simply a word that means uh, um, speech, Word. Here it means divine Word, divine self-revelation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Meaning that the Word he's speaking of here has the same character, the same quality, the same essence of God, because the Word is God. And yet we see the glory of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But here it's talking about the word Jesus who is uncreated. He is the divine creator. The word is the creative word. The word is revelation. The word is the prophetic word. The word is the living word, the personal word, the divine word. The word that was there before there was a world. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. All things were made through Him, that is through the Word, through Jesus Who is the Christ? The word of the Father who is a person. The one who comes as the ultimate revelation of who God is, is a person. His name is Jesus. He is the one in the very beginning when there was no created world who helped speak the world into existence. Order the world, bringing order out of chaos. Bringing light to darkness. Giving life in a world that knew no life. He is the one who is the agent of doing that in the beginning. And now here we see, as we've already read in verse 14, that the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. Now I want you to notice that the key to it all is not rationalism and it's not mysticism. That is rationalism, the idea that, that logic is sovereign. The idea that, that, uh, thinking is sovereign. But it's also not mysticism. That's the idea that experience is sovereign, even ununderstandable experience. There's some state beyond rationality that you go to. It's not rationalism. It's not mysticism. But rather, the key is a person. That's totally different. Jesus is not merely an idea, Jesus is not merely a worldview, Jesus is not merely some ecstatic experience, He is a person. And the person who created the world in the very beginning, a world that reveals God, is the one who is in the world birthing a new creation, who who in himself, in his person, is the ultimate revelation of God. Think about what this means. You know, sometimes we see someone... We observe them from a distance. We watch what they do. And somebody may say, you know, uh, but we've never spoken to them. We've just sort of observed them. We can say things about them. They're about this height. They have this color hair. It seems that they like to do this. But if somebody came to us and asked us if we knew them, we would say, I know about them, but I don't know them. Why? We don't consider ourselves actually knowing someone until we communicate with them. Until we talk with them. It's only through communication. It's only through uh, words that we really know someone. We can know about someone from observation... But when we talk to someone over an extended period of time, we can say, I don't just know about them, I know them. Now, think about what Christianity is calling you to. It's not calling you merely to an idea. It's not calling you merely to observational facts about the new creation. It's calling you To see everything about the new creation through the lens of the person of Jesus, who is the Christ. It all stands or falls with Him. Do we know Him? Yes, He communicated it to us from the very beginning. The entire created order streams His name. And yet, we don't really know Him until we know Him through the promised Son jesus the one in whom we come to faith the one in which we know salvation when we know him god has given us his word and god has given us his word in the incarnation of christ in his very person but i want you to see this notice how this event is decisive in the spiritual battle that we all face Our only hope is in a new creation. You have no hope in your ability to reform yourself. You could clean yourself up, and if it were possible, never sin again. But you've got the problem that you've sinned in the past. You can't clean yourself up enough. You can't morally reform. It's not an idea. You don't just sort. I think I'll start singing Christian songs, and that'll make me a Christian. It doesn't work that way. What you need is a new creation, a new world that God is birthing. And who's he filling it with? If anyone be in Christ, Paul says, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things are made new. The old and fallen world leads to destruction. But in a new creation, there is a new age that has dawned. There is a new covenant. There is a new Adam. There's a new temple. There's a new priest. There's a new prophet. There's a new king. There's a new everything. And at the center of it all is the one who took on flesh and was born in a stable. And it all stands or falls with the reality of that event. Christmas is the decisive answer to the gospel promise in Genesis 3.15. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. As the new creation unfolds, we see in verses 4 through 11 that Jesus is the illuminating Word. The illuminating Word. Look with me in verses 4 and 5. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, notice here, the talk about the new creation moves into a talk about life and light. If we go back to the original creation, what marks the ordering of the created order is that there is light out of darkness, let there be light, and God creates Human beings in his own image, his image bearers. In the original created order, the key components of the ordering of the world in the creation account are light and life. And now Jesus, who comes to usher in a new creation, comes with him and in him was life. That is eternal life. That is life in the new creation. And that life is the light of man. Jesus says He is the light of the world. And that light shines in darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The the word overcome is a word that means seized. The, The darkness has not tamped it out. The darkness has not been able to capture it and put it away. It's military language. Creation, chaos. Light, darkness. Life, death. Do you see it? It's a battle. It's a battle. And to win the battle, what we need is the light. And that light only comes through Christ who grants eternal life, who is the light of the world. And when we are in Him, our light can shine in darkness. Because we become swept in to the Word of the Father that is a person. The new creation begins like the first. Now, I could spend literally hours chasing you all the way back through the Old Testament texts that are being gathered up and pointed to here, but that's what he's doing. In the beginning, points to Genesis 1. Light and life, and that unfolds in the Old Testament, is, is the unfolding of that revelation, and Jesus is the one who is fulfilling it all. Just light. Um, Numbers twenty four seventeen said that there there would come a star out of Jacob, that is the Messiah, the one the seed born of woman. Isaiah nine two and forty two six and seven talks about the Messiah coming and being light shining in darkness. Malachi four two talks about the Son of Righteousness, Son S U N. The one who comes shining, bringing the righteousness of God. We could go again and again and again. But the point is, like the original creation, light overcomes darkness. In the new creation, light is overcoming darkness. Light will not be seized by the darkness. This is battle language that declares the reality of where the victory comes. Look with me at verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptizer. Now, do you know what's going on here? The discussion began before the creation of the world. And now here in just a handful of verses, we are at about A.D. 29. A particular place, a particular time in history with a particular man. A man, John the Baptizer, who had a particular role. Verse 7. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light. That, here's the purpose clause, all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, notice this. He testifies. He is not the light, but He bears witness about the light. The the language here is... Is legal language, it's courtroom language, it's it's uh, uh the battle lines of government sort of language. And John the Baptist comes and he bears witness, he testifies that in Jesus the light has come. And notice that all might believe through him. All might believe. Isn't he a Jewish Messiah? All might believe through him the promise to Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And those who would come after him, who would be as many as the stars in the sky. Yeah, Jews and Gentiles. So there are Jews who are not true Jews. And there are Gentiles who are. Those who believe in Him, those who know the eternal life, those who are derivative lights in the world to the glory of Christ, notice the call to decision. How will you respond? He has been born witness to. How will you respond to the testimony? Will you believe that He is the one in whom there is eternal life? Will you believe that He is the light of the world? Will you believe and live for this new creation at it's king? You know, I've only been in total darkness a few times in my life. One time I was in a cave in Tennessee and they cut out all the artificial lights and it was totally dark. And the tiniest amount of light uh, was absolutely liberating. You wanted any sort of light. Jesus comes into the darkness of a fallen world and He is the light. And all who follow Him by faith have the opportunity to witness to Him and be derivative, reflective lights of Him in the world. Look at verses 9 through 11. Beginning in verse 9, The true light, now that's a particular language there that is pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, as the one who fulfills the original promise. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through Him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, John has this habit of emphasizing things by repeating over and over. He's repeated life, he's repeated light, he's repeated the word, and now he repeats the world. So this one who came into the world... The Word that became flesh and dwelt among us comes into the world. He invades the present world, the present evil age. And He comes bringing light. And though He comes with the true light, the light from which all other light reflects, though He comes, He is largely, at least in the beginning, rejected. So as He brings the new creation and the light of the new creation. There are those who refuse to believe the testimony of John and the testimony of Jesus Himself. And it says He came to His own, meaning the Jewish people, and His own largely did not believe Him. Now notice how it works. New creation, life, light, believe. Now think about that. The new creation comes into the world, the fallen creation, the fallen created order. It comes bringing life that is eternal life, life that is qualitatively different than life in this world. It comes with light, choose six times, and the key is believing in the one who is the true light, like Abraham having it reckoned to you as righteousness. But notice the call to decision. He was in the world and He made the world and the world did not know Him. Sobering words. He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. Do you see how these are words of conflict? These are words of battle? These are the battle lines of Christmas. Creation, life, light. The only alternative... To creation, the new creation, is the chaos of the present fallen creation. Eternal life, the only uh, alternative to that is the reality of eternal death. Light, the true light, the only alternative to that is the reality of darkness. Here we have it. Without what we celebrate at Christmas, there is only chaos, death, and darkness. But Jesus did come. He was the promised Messiah. He was the true light. And because of Him, even in the midst of the present fallen order, there is new creation, eternal life, and true light. This is the battle of Christmas. This is the battle that that we've got to fight, that we've got to root ourselves in to know what we are really saying when we say these words and when we sing these glorious songs. And stop falling for all kinds of superficial things that allow us to have a self-righteous sort of platform and paint ourselves as the good guy. We all get swept into sentimentality instead of reality all the time. The truth is, the person at Walmart who says, Happy Holidays to you, needs the gospel. That's a totally different issue. The new creation has come to the old and the light of the world is shining. And in verses 12 through 14, it paints the picture of Jesus as the personal word. Jesus is the personal word. Look with me at 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but, and it's the word of contrast here, but of God. The picture here is so stark. He, All who did receive Him. To receive Him, you have to turn to Him. This is a picture of repentance. All who did receive Him Stop trusting in themselves and look to Him, turn to Him. Who believed in His name, this is faith. This is trusting in Him and His promises. John says that the whole gospel was written, John twenty thirty one. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That you may put your faith in it, that you may trust in that. And then he says, gives the right to become children of God. Again, right is legal language. You were not children of God. Now you are given the legal right to be children of God through Christ because He is the eternal Son of God. And He is the one who is the light of the world. He is the one in whom there is eternal life. And when that happens, you are adopted into the family of God and you are born anew in a new creation in a new family. This is the new birth. This is the new creation. And that did not come about by blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. In other words, becoming a child of God and gaining the right to be a child of God is not a natural act. That means this. You have absolutely zero way that you can be a child of God apart from absolute sovereign grace. Zero. It's not a natural act. It's a supernatural one. And it's a supernatural one that comes in the world with the promise embodied in Jesus, the Son of God who takes on human flesh. He says, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But this is what God is doing in the world. God is creating this new creation and filling it with people that are new creations. People who have repented and believed and who are adopted in the family of God by sovereign grace. The call here is to decision. You can receive or you can reject. You can believe or you can be faithless. You can be a child of God or you can be an orphan. The language here is language that people, some people think of themselves as children of God by birth, by ethnicity. Particularly here the tendency of somebody who's Jewish to think I am a child of God because I was born a child of God. But he is saying here very specifically that though all people are created in the image of God, That to be a child of God in the way it's talking about here, a part of a new family, in a new order, in a new creation, with a new king, only comes by faith no matter your ethnicity. No matter your background. In fact, the glory of God is being magnified in the diversity of ethnicities and backgrounds who are brought into that family. And that's what God is doing in the world. Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us the, the the language here literally means tabernacled among us. The tabernacle was in the wilderness. It was the place that represented the presence of God dwelling there. Within it there's the holy of holies, there's the place of sacrifice, this is the presence of God, and in here we see the glory of God. So the word, the eternal word, God the Son, takes on flesh. He's a baby in a manger. And He tabernacles among us. Meaning, He brings the glory of God to us. He brings the presence of God to us. He is the revelation of God in the way no other revelation can be. He tabernacles among us. And then it says, And we have seen His glory, that is His weight, His majesty. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace. Genesis 3.15, a seed will be born of woman who will crush the head of the serpent. In other words, there is a way for you to be delivered though you deserve judgment. Unmerited favor in spite of what you deserve. Truth. The justice of God will not be compromised. Because the one who was born in the manger comes to die as an atoning sacrifice to pay the penalty for sin. Full of grace and truth. In the manger, on the cross, the empty tomb, we see a manifestation of the glory of God in a way we can see it no other way. He is deliberately here connecting Jesus the Word to the Old Testament prophetic Word. He is deliberately picking up all the language of the Old Testament and applying it to Jesus. This is the decisive reality. This is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. The personal word. He dwelt among us. Now, note what that means. Everything depends on Jesus. Jesus was not simply bringing revelation. He was the revelation of God. Jesus was not simply bringing truth, he was the truth. Jesus was not just bringing a way of grace, he was the way. You have all kinds of religion in the religions of the world that are ideas, that are philosophies, that are plans of attainment in the sight of God, our gods or whatever. Christianity is totally different. Completely different. Jesus, the decisive reality, does not just simply bring revelation. He does not just simply bring truth. He does not simply bring a way of life. He said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. You remember Moses... Moses in Exodus 33, there's a time of rebellion among the people of God. And Moses cries out to God at one point and says, If your presence does not go with us, do not take us out from here. And then he ends up saying, show us your glory. Presence, with us, glory, Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses' cry. Emmanuel means God with us. God Himself taking on flesh and dwelling with us. The presence of God with us. And if He is not with us, we have no hope and we should not take another step if He is not with us, there's every reason to go home, hide under the covers, and not come out. But if He is with us, there is nowhere in the world that we can't go in His name because eternity is secure. And in His incarnation, His infleshing, His death, His crucifixion, and His resurrection, we see the glory of God. Moses cried out, show me your glory. We have seen the glory of God. His name is Jesus, full of grace and truth. He tabernacled among us. When we were in Israel, uh, we ate dinner at the house of a man who was training to be a Jewish rabbi. And we did it on the Sabbath. And so he was explaining to us the way they do all these things. And, you know, he's got to wash his hands three different times in three different ways and, and all this. Kind. But one of the things, something as innocuous as somebody said, hey, I've got to go to the bathroom. And, and one of the people who lives there and serves among them said, don't turn off the light. Don't turn off the light in the bathroom. Why not? It's the Sabbath. They won't be able to turn it back on. Really? Oh, yeah. You can't work on the Sabbath. That's work. Now, that's not the way Christianity works. That rabbi has a particular background. He keeps particular rules that mark Him out, and that's what His hope and confidence is in. He would say, the Messiah has not come. And so, He lives in this self-defeating world of whether or not you can turn the light on or off. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think back with me. Imagine we could be alive at the time after Jesus has come, after he's been crucified, after he's been resurrected, and we are a part of that early church. And we've got a neighbor who's a pagan. And the neighbor who's a pagan says, "Uh, oh, you're Christians, you're a part of a new religion? Wow, I'm interested in that. Tell me about the new religion. Where is your temple? Um, well, we don't have a temple. What do you mean you don't have a temple? Well, Jesus is the temple. He fulfilled it for us. Okay, okay, wh- where are your priests? Uh, well, we don't have priests either. We don't have a temple, we don't have priests. Why? Because Jesus is the priest. Well, okay, this is kind of weird. But, uh, okay. What kind of sacrifices do you offer your God? Well, Jesus was the sacrifice. He's paid the debt in full. Now, do you see that? Jesus is the temple of God. The presence, the glory. By the way, there's no more altar because there's nothing to offer on the altar. The final all-sufficient sacrifices come. Jesus is the great high priest to which all other priests had pointed to. Jesus is not only the altar, he's the, he's the sacrifice on the altar. He offers Himself so there is no more blood that needs to be shed. You've got all these religions and then you've got Christianity and the answer is Jesus Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The personal word of God. Christmas is war on chaos, death, darkness, and the orphan crisis. Christmas' answer to chaos, death, darkness, and the orphan crisis is Jesus who brings a new creation. Jesus who brings eternal life in that new creation. Jesus who comes as the light of the world. Jesus who comes and gives us the right to be children of God. And as long as Jesus is alive, and as long as the Word is living, the promises are sure. And that's what we ought to mean when we say Merry Christmas. Let's pray.